Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the podcast Strikes Back. My name is George and you're listening to our interview with Morris Fitzpatrick, uh, an Irish film director who's in Sydney for the Irish Film Festival with his film In the Name of Peace, John Hume in America. The podcast Strikes Back was lucky enough to get invited along to the Chevelle Cinema in Sydney to interview Morris. So I went along and uh, sat down and the Chevelle is just a lovely setting uh, in Sydney. It's a great old creaky cinema, fantastic spot. And it was an absolute pleasure to sit down with Morris to talk more about his film. I watched it a number of days ago and it was a really interesting watch. Um, I, I knew very little about the subject matter, which covers uh, mainly to do with Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And there's a lot of interesting things to unpack with this. Um, but if you're not into that kind of um, historical, political subject matter. We get into a few other interesting topics, um, talking about archival footage, as well as working with Liam Neeson. It was great to sit down with Morris. He's a, he's a terribly nice guy. Uh, so without further ado, uh, let's get into the interview. Take it away. Welcome to Australia. Thanks so much for being here. Um, what has it been like traveling to Australia and coming here to the Irish Film Festival here in Sydney? Well, it's been a wonderful adventure, obviously a long way. I was just coming from a screening in Paris, France, and uh, trundling down the southern hemisphere, trying to recover from jet lag and keep standing, but it's been wonderful, mainly because of the, the warmth and <laughs> kindness and solicitousness of the people. So yeah, things are going really well, and as for presenting the film here, great honour, great privilege, and I'm part, I know, of a, a very wide and warm community in that this film festival is going strong. There are people of several different generations who would have come here as Irish people come to Australia, and then of course native Australians who are, um, well, I mean, we've got a packed house there, the film is playing, and um, couldn't ask for more. Things are going really well. That's fantastic. Yeah, great crowd tonight. Let's talk about the film that you're screening here, based on uh, John Hume. And for me, I watched the film last night. Very uh, informative film. I'm quite uh, ignorant on uh, the troubles, as it were. It was uh, very informative and quite a complex story to put together. So... Um, you know, what I'd like to know more about is, you know, talk about your relationship with John Hume and also the sort of genesis of the project, how it all started. Sure. Well, I first worked with John Hume on a previous film, in fact, one called The Boys of St. Columns. Yep. And Hume went to this high school in, in Derry called St. Columns College. And he's an exemplar of the first generation of kids in Northern Ireland to be recipients of the, of the free education uh, legislation that had been passed in 1947. So through talking to him, I was aware how important it was to him to have had educational opportunity. I was aware, moreover, of the political dimension to this particular generation getting an education and, of course, within, when they came of age, they started to make demands, demands for change, demands for a more inclusive and decent society in the North. All of that I heard straight from him, but moreover what I did hear from him was that when he encountered resistance as a 
political representative of these people in first the Northern Ireland Parliament, Parliament of Northern Ireland, I should say, and later Britain and Europe, he still had a joker to play. He had a, he had a, this capacity to marshal the support of a distinct body of political figures in Washington who had wielded tremendous power, and particularly wielded power on the British, who in turn would exercise, albeit reluctantly, uh, a certain coercion on the unionists in the north to be a little bit more inclusive and to accommodate a new political structure in the north. So Hume invented this American or Washington dimension and he did so through his credibility, through his standing among those people and through their identification with his policies of social justice and you know a new modern and um, sensible approach to politics. Yeah, great. Yeah, so it, it you know, I, I watched, as I said, I watched the film last night, and, and, and it's a very complex story. Um, you know, this, this it spans over four decades, and, and there's a wealth of information to cover. And I thought, you know, from somebody who um, grew up in for the first ten years of their life in England and knew a little bit about the IRA, but nothing very concrete. Um, I thought this was done very elegantly, and uh, yeah, as I said, I, I learnt a lot and I found it very informative. So, my question to you is: with all this wealth of information, how did you? What was your approach to finding the story and and cutting it together and sort of planning out this piece for a ninety-minute documentary? How, what, what was that process like and was it a difficult process to whittle it down? Yeah, it certainly was difficult. It was, I remember having a 120-minute cut and I just said to myself, this is too long. I need a, I'll come in at 90 minutes. And that involved the butchery of certain parts of the film that I was very fond of, maybe particularly fond of, I thought, if I may say so, among, among the most beautiful parts related to Hume's dimension, uh, his career in, in, in Strasbourg, representing his people in Europe. And I just thought to myself, well, it's going off on too much of a tangent. I need to be focused. So that was the main way of whittling down, as you say, trying to keep the focus, mm. trying to uh, keep an eye always on the seat of political power, namely the series of United States presidents, starting with Carter through to Reagan and ultimately Clinton, and to focus on the, the core members of the United States Congress. So, yeah, there is a lot of material there, and as you say, it spans several decades. And the, the troubles, the Irish troubles are inherently complex to unpack. Yeah. It's easy to envisage, and indeed there have been such things done as, as series and you know, ten-parters and so on, so I wasn't doing that. And I was conscious of needing to communicate the bare essence of what had happened in the North and then um, positioning Hume within that. Yeah, it was a fascinating story about him leveraging um, his relationship in the United States for, you know, impact in his hometown. You know, it's very, very interesting and complex and nuanced. And um, I found it very compelling. 
Um, so another thing I wanted to ask you about was the significant amount of archival footage. You know, the main sort of story, I guess, you correct me if I'm wrong, is sort of 1969 to 1998. Those are the main beats of the film. And, you know, talk, I would like you to talk about the, the process of obtaining the footage and then, you know, going through the footage and, and figuring out what to include, what to not include. Yeah, I would broadly agree that, that those two dates bookend the film. I would probably position it more in 1964 when Hume wrote these seminal articles about it, it, they were his diagnosis of the problem that existed in the North before the Troubles had really begun, but he, he could see that this political structure wasn't workable and that this new crop of educated people, as I've mentioned, were going to need more political inclusion. So he was arguing for a new form of nationalism, not a nationalism that was stuck on patriotic themes, not a nationalism that was anti-partitionist and of a boycotting mindset, but rather a nationalism that acknowledged the Irish dimension to the people who lived in the north and nevertheless acknowledged that unionists lived in the north and, you know, we have to find a way of living together and governing together. So Hume had said all that in 64. Then, tragically, as we know, in the late 60s, the civil rights movement was was harassed in every way, brutalized, and even though many of its demands weren't actually met, but the, the violence that was unleashed by the statelet, the Northern Irish state, and consolidated then by the British Army presence and ultimately Bloody Sunday was just... It's, it felt at that time to... A lot of people that that was a point of no return. Yeah, very harrowing. Very, very harrowing. Indeed, it was. I mean, even to describe it today is is politically problematic. There are people who refer to Bloody Sunday as as a moment when the British Army opened fire indiscriminately on on protesters. But as a matter of fact, I wouldn't characterise them that way. The British Army, the paratro- the paratroopers. Um, open fire on picked targets. They picked out young men, young men and boys and it was a deliberate strategy to infuriate that area of Derry and to embitter the people suddenly within a few months of Bloody Sunday storm and the storm in Parliament was prorogued and there was direct rule from London. It was a cataclysmic event. Hume himself uh, is treated up in the film. He he took a stance against being there on Bloody Sunday because he believed that there was a very serious risk of fatal violence towards the protesters and he felt that as a civil rights leader he, he couldn't take that risk in leading people into that. And, yeah, so the, the film does trace that right through to very significant political milestones along the way, the Anglo-Irish Agreement in '85, the... Um, the strengthening of the the Irish lobby on Capitol, yeah. on Capitol Hill and then in turn and in tandem and intrinsically related to that, the um, growth of awareness and engagement by the White House. So, and then we culminate, I suppose, in, in this film in, the, in 1998 with the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. And that in many ways is a culmination of Hume's career. It coincides with uh, 
an onset of, of illness, which his, his wife, Pat Hume, has been public about. He's got uh, dementia. So shortly after that, he did retire in a gradual way from politics. He retired from Westminster the following year, and uh, he became less prominent in, in the political negotiations. But so much of what is in the Good Friday Agreement was part of the political roadmap he'd drawn. Mm. So there's a there's a, a good logic quite apart from his personal circumstances for ending the film there. Yeah. Um, there's one bit of footage that really stuck in my mind, which is um, sort of shows a lot about the character of John Hume, I think. Um, it's the archival footage where he's on the beach speaking with the British soldier. Um, and he's very, you know, you can see he's a very rational, non-violent um, kind of guy and and, and I, I felt like that was a very sort of I, I don't know I felt like that scene really number one the footage was incredible like some of the, the the handheld footage seeing that on the beach you know it's this is real this is this is tangible and um, number two you know very sort of succinctly showed his character um, do you want to talk anything about that scene and what that scene means to you at all or why you chose to include it yeah, actually, you, you'd asked me about um, archival footage and obtaining it, so here we go. And the McGilligan Beach sequence was crucially important to me from the outset. I knew that it was going to be a big part in the film. And indeed, I, I spoke to Pat Hume and asked her whether we could go out to McGilligan with John Hume. As I say, John Hume doesn't really have his health at this point, but she agreed, she saw the, the, the rationale. And while we didn't actually use live footage of John on the beach in McGilligan, we did, I mean, myself and the editor, we did uh, go straight into using the, the McGilligan encounter. What it means to me, I mean, it represents a clash, certainly between the British Army officer and John Hume, that's obvious. But it also represents a clash between the British and the Irish at that point. It represents a clash between the colonised and the uh, and the coloniser. And even the accent alone, this hoity, uh, to go back to where you yeah. come. Uh, it's, it's almost inconceivable to hear today. And yet that's the, that's the car- brand of character who's being sent to the north of Ireland to keep the peace. Yeah. It, uh, it seems inconceivable now, but it's so much as crushing up against... Uh, each other in that scene and Hume as you point out is is the rational figure he demands first and foremost what authority do you have to do this yeah. and the soldier doesn't have an adequate reply to that Hume let's remember is John Hume MP, he's a member of the Parliament of Northern Ireland and as such he's got uh, he's got credibility of being there and when he's demanding legal justification for the actions taken by the paratroopers his um, his demand is a, is a very serious one one that can't be easily ignored and I think let's also remember his followers the people who would, would have come with him on that march would have expected him and very much expected him to be a leader in a moment like that, to exhibit courage to exhibit um, a capacity to argue his case 
and to assert their rights simply might in some senses sound trivial and you walk across a beach but the fact is the British Army were doing something in a jurisdiction where they didn't have authority to do so and Hume is going you know, deep into these questions, philosophical questions so um, I thought it was really important to have it there for that in itself and then of course as we know, within a week there was another major march in Derry almost as a response to that, the fact that the peaceful demonstrators had been treated thus and that Sunday became Bloody Sunday so all the consequences that, have flo that flowed from Bloody Sunday need also to be understood from the fact that uh, there was a great deal of provocation on McGilligan Beach that day and Hume's political in instincts were quite right in seeing that something profound had shifted in the psyche of the army corps and the, the, the army command and that they were willing to use violence and as we learned you know, a week later they were willing to to use live rounds and kill people yeah um, so Going back to more about putting this project together, you have some pretty heavy-hitting names in this. You know, Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, uh, former British Prime Ministers John Major and Tony Blair as well. Um, could you talk a bit about, you know, actually interviewing these, these, these massive, like, worldwide known names and then also the process of actually conducting all the interviews and how long that, that whole process took? It spanned several years. Uh, I remember going to America one year in the um, naive assumption that I might be able to in that summer alone interview Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter. I came back with no, neither interview in the can. <laughs> so it was a learning curve for me. You know, If you want to get access to people like that you really must persist and you must find various channels and it's one thing to make an argument and write a try to write a convincing letter it's another thing to know that the letter gets to the person yeah and there is a, a serious array of people around protectors um, gatekeepers around such such uh, figures so yeah, I had to keep going and I had to keep making the film and showing demonstrating to people that this was getting made and that they're Role. I'm saying the role of President Carter or President Clinton. Their role was um, um, a really important part of the story, and I really wanted them to be part of it. So I think that's the, the quick answer. Just keep. I just kept at it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another heavy hitter that you have in this is our boy Liam Neeson. Um, what was it like working with him on the voiceover? How many days did you have him in the studio? I've always been very interested about you know, working on these types of things. Was it very free-flowing? He did a lot of quotes from John Hume. You know, was it quite a structured process and quite quick? Or did it sort of span several days and, and you tr trial and error? Liam Neeson is a consummate pro. And when I gave him the script... Recorded in his, his chosen, his favorite studio in New York. And I gave him the script and he banged it out in no time. I mean, he, he only took a couple of takes, or typically the first take was actually the best of the whole lot. So now he nailed this. Uh, let's remember as well Liam Neeson is, is from the north, he's from Ballymena, County Antrim. 
and uh, a story like this, a story of the nationalist people achieving a, a degree of dignity and political involvement is very much in his bones. Um, so I think it was it was very important that he do it, that he narrate it. Uh, I only went for Liam Neeson, only asked Liam yeah, Neeson, nice. and uh, he got him. And well, he he said yes. So that was that was very. I was very very touched that he did, and I was very impressed by by his whole approach. Quick to answer your question about the the practicalities, not within a morning. It was just a morning's work, yeah. you know. So. Um, yeah, I asked him to. I mean, the, the voiceover narration is heavily concentrating on uh, Hume's speeches, some of which are very profound and very. Um, they go right to the heart of the personality of the man. So it's not, in some senses, a conventional narration script. You know, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and look, I'm standing in front of such a building, and so on. No, it's not like that. It's, it's rather trying to capture the essence of, the, of John Hume through his. The interviews he would have given down the years through, through his writings and through his in, and through his uh, speeches, and that seems to have worked out. I mean, people have been able to may not have known a lot about the story at the outset, have been able to follow the story from from the the participants who were in the film, and then through. Um, getting some of John Hume's words into it. It was also important for me, let's remember, Hume himself has a spectral presence in the film, but he's not a full participant. He doesn't talk in the film. So having archival material of him and having his speeches and his words in various forms was important to me. And having Liam Neeson read them, well, it's, yeah. it's a dream ticket. Happy days. Um, one thing that I really liked in this film, this is a little bit... I guess a bit of a strange question to to talk about in the um, you know, for a documentary, but um, I really like the opening title sequence with the water and the bouncing camera going across the lake, um, and it had a very emotional score about it. And I think it really kind of locked you into the feature, even though it didn't really seem to connect with, at least from my perspective. Initially, I didn't understand the connection between how this was going to you know, you know, become part of the John Hume narrative. What was your mindset with that particular component of the film, and and can you talk a little bit about putting that together? Yeah. So, the water sequence in the opening, as you mentioned, it does link up with there's a water motif in the film. You get views of rivers and lakes and. Uh, boats and so on and it's something that I had to talk at some length with the editor about because it's so much easier not to take uh, a risk like that, not to try to establish a sort of motif but it, it did work from my point of view anyway I mean for me, just to jump in, I mean I didn't even pick up on that motif but something about it roped me into the feature there was just very cinematic quality to it mm -hmm. Well thanks for saying so I I, I shot it in my hometown. I'm from Belturbet, County Cavan, so I that those rivers and lakes are all where I grew up, and indeed the boatman is my father. So it's, I kept it nice and close to home, and it's a place I was very, you know, very attached to. And there's this some part of the film. There's a there's a, a little island with a tiny little architectural folly. Actually, it's not doesn't have any use, but it's. Um, I was trying to 
symbolise in a sense Ireland and this little island and how it has become divided and then there are divisions within that division, the island within the islands. But sometimes, to be honest, when you find a motif and you find visual images, I think it can sometimes repay not to interrogate them too deeply. If you find that they work, if you put them up on the screen and you're, you're happy with the way it, it intercuts and interrelates to the material, maybe that's just enough. Um, and maybe the healthiest thing for me to do is just to say let it i hope it works and let it work yeah i guess it's like that subconscious decision you know it feels right so let's include it um so my final question to you is what's it like interviewing bono come on man that was awesome <laughs> and i love i particularly loved um that when he references one of the quotes of john hume um and his his interpretation of that i thought that was a really um powerful moment and a, a, an interesting moment yeah that particular quote just to give you some context in 1975 there was a failed convention between unionists and nationalists in the north and the unionists boycotted Hume's speech so Hume walked into a hall in which there were empty benches and one of the phrases he uses is in speaking to empty benches he says one day we will understand the meaning of the words we use and I mean it's very poignant he's using these words again and again in his speeches he was a great man for hammering the message home and finally that message did get home even to the most recalcitrant of um, people in the north and parties and so on they started to adopt Hume, Hume's language and he had a very profound belief in the role of language to modify people's hard-held convictions and to make, it, make them more accommodating of a, of a you know, broader-based politics yeah, Bono would have seen that. I mean, he was. Bono's been a long time, long term supporter of John Hume. You know, he's, he's appeared on camera with him. as a famous iconic image just before the, uh, the two referenda were passed in Ireland in 98, approving the Good Friday Agreement. Um, he holds up John Hume's arm, and, you know, he's, he's um, trying to play a role. And I think also he. Well, that never necessarily being directly relevant to Hume in some of his concerts in the United States there was uh, one particular response he had to the Enniskillen bombing which was an utterly barbaric act targeting men, women and children, innocent people who were just trying to commemorate um, remember their dead and uh, Bono in the middle of a concert in the United States um, in the United States makes it very clear that the U2 song um, Sunday Bloody Sunday is not a rebel song it's not and he starts to educate people you know this is the violence that you may condone you may even support financially is causing untold wreckage in people's lives and it's getting us nowhere and Bono has taken those stances and he's identified very firmly with, with John Hughes' line so I interviewed him in his home, his um, rather modest one-bedroom bungalow. <laughs> Not. Sure. 
<laughs> Wasn't his room pink or something? It was like a hot pink in the back. That's his music room. <laughs> music house, I would probably yeah. more, more accurately yeah. characterize it. Yeah. And um, Did you get to hang out with him for a bit, or was it pretty snappy? Uh, he was between... I mean, let, if you followed the fortunes of you 2 recently, he'd been on two or three world tours and two or three... Yeah. Records coming out, so he was in the middle of yeah, he was in the middle of all of that, and it was actually very tricky indeed to schedule an interview with him because of that, because he was all over the world. And once, well, the the message that the miners were giving me was once that sort of world tour um, momentum starts, his life is not his own, his schedule is not his own, and they daren't interfere with it, even if it is. Or a film about John Hume, but I like to look and like the presence, like anyone else. I just kept at it. Yeah, um, yeah, no, amazing roster of people you got on this film. Um, so yeah, thank you so much, Morris, for uh, talking with the podcast strikes back today. Is there anything else you want to add to the interview? Anything else you want to plug? Yeah, well, I'll just say this: those who are deeply interested in the story, I've written a book on the subject. It's also called John Hume in America, and the subtitle is From Derry to DC. And the the book is doing well. It got a forward from Senator George Mitchell, who is, of course, the chairperson of the peace talks in Ireland in 1997, 98. And the other thing I'll say is that this is screening here in Sydney, but later next week in Melbourne, we're having a screening in Canberra as well. So um, if your listeners are, are in those cities, you'd they'd be very welcome to come along. Yeah, we've got a couple. <laughs> Very good. Well, thank you so much, man. I hope you have a great rest of the trip in Australia and uh, all the best. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Cheers. So that was uh, my interview with Morris Fitzpatrick. Uh, really, really great guy. And uh, he just knows a lot about this subject matter. He, you know, obviously at the end of the day, he's plugging his book. Um, and, uh, he's just very scrubbed up on this and he's very passionate about the subject matter. And it really came across in the interview. Um, we had a little bit of a chat after the interview as well. And it was just really, really nice to kick back with him for a minute and chat about a few things. And as I said, just a lovely guy. So thanks so much for listening to this interview. Um, we've got more really great content coming out on the podcast strikes back. So don't forget to subscribe. Um, we're also on YouTube. So we're pumping out video content and, um, don't forget also Facebook, Instagram, like us, follow us, join the conversation. We love talking about movies. So we hope to see you around and goodbye.